We are continuing our study this morning on uh, Jesus' sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. We find that sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and we are in the end of chapter 6 now. Okay, so I'm going to read it to us. You have a handout there on your table, and then we'll dig in together. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Henry Nowen, who is a Christian author and priest, retells a parable from ancient India that goes like this. Four royal brothers each decided to master a special ability. Time went by, and after they had gained their skills, they met again to see what each had learned. The first stands up and says, look, I've mastered a science by which I can take the bone of a creature and I can create the flesh that goes on the bone. The second says, that's pretty impressive. I've also mastered a science. I know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there's already flesh on the bone put skin and hair on it. The third said, I'm able to create its limbs if I have the flesh and the skin and the hair. And I concluded the fourth, I know how to give the creature life if everything else is complete in its place. Brothers went to the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate to each other their impressive capacities. And as fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's bone. So one added flesh to the bone. The second grew hide and hair. The third added the matching limbs to the lion's bone, and the fourth gave the lion life. And then shaking its mane, the resurrected lion arose and jumped on the four brothers, killing them all and vanishing contently into the jungle. The end. <laughs> I tell my kids that story every night before bed just to toughen them up a little bit, you know. <laughs> Nowen tells the story to illustrate this point. He says, look, we, we as human beings possess the power to create what can devour us. For all of our um, amazing and unique abilities as men created in the image of God, we can actually raise to life the very things that consume us. So take, for example, what Jesus says in verse 24. We looked at this verse last week. Look at it again with me there, the first verse in your handout. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. He says, money in your handout. We talked about this last week. In, 
in the original language, everything is in the Greek except this word. It's the word mammon in Aramaic. And, and Jesus leaves that word untranslated to give it the force of a personal power. So why would he do that? Well, he does it to warn us that we can take something as inanimate as a coin or a financial statement or a piece of property or a standard of living. And we can not only raise the lifeless to life, but we can, we can actually raise it all the way up to the power of a God that we obey at all costs. We possess the power to create what can then devour us. There's a collegiate speech, graduation speech, that has been floating around for about 10 years now called This Is Water by David Foster Wallace. You've probably heard it before. It's been around multiple outlets. I know that we've quoted it here on at least one occasion in Tuesday morning Bible study, but it's powerful. And its power, I think, is in the fact that um, Wallace is one of the great writers of our generation. And the power, I think, is in the fact that he comes by the conclusion by sheer observation. He's not listening to Tim Keller sermons or or reading about Jesus necessarily. He is an agnostic, he says, when it comes to religious claims. But as a writer, and an especially gifted writer, who is trained to see the world, and not only trained to see the world, but to see the human dynamics that often are taken for granted in the world, here is what Wallace says to a group of Kenyan graduate, uh, graduates um, in 2005. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. That's exactly what Jesus just said in verse 24. You're going to serve some form of a God. There is no such thing, he says, as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship, he says, will eat you alive. In other words, it's the, it's the parable from India. It, it will devour you. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will, never, you will, never, you will ever need more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, <laughs> a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. You get the picture, he goes on in the speech, but you know, his point is this, that you can add flesh and bone and hide and hair and life and authority to almost anything that is inanimate in your, in your life, and once you raise it up to the status of a God, which you have the power to do, it will devour you. So the question for us this morning, just to think about as we get started, is what are you worshiping, right? What are you worshiping? And I know, I know the answer in a Bible study like this, 95% of the time is Jesus, and I know that's your profession of faith for many of you. Um, you'd say Jesus, but it, it, as Wallace says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of your life, um, where do you tap meaning, as he says? Where do you tap meaning? Where do you draw energy and security and purpose and identity for your life? Some of you have heard those questions before, and you think, I, you know, I always get there, and I don't, know how to, I don't know how to answer it. I don't know how to make the move from that sort of broad question to actually identifying what I'm really worshiping. Well, thankfully, we have verse 25. Jesus tells us in verse 25, okay? 
You want to know how to find out what you're really worshiping? Look at verse 25 with me. Jesus says, therefore, that's an important word. Why? Well, it just means that verses 24 and 25 are connected. They're very connected. They're intimately connected. Therefore, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That is, don't worry about your life. Uh, Take no heed, take no care or burden for what the future holds. Don't trouble yourself about what is coming in your life. So how is it that you really know what you're worshiping? Well, Jesus says, look for the place in your life where anxiety grips you. Look for the place in your life where anxiety grips you. What do you worry about? What do you stress about? When you think about the future, where where do you feel panicked? If you will go to that place, you will find a God in the day-to-day trenches of your life. Therefore, I say to you, Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, those were important concerns in that day and age. You probably don't think a lot about where your next meal is going to come from or kind of the clothes you're going to have, but that was important for them. And basically what he's saying is, is don't worry about the future. Don't worry about providing for yourself, how you're going to make it, how you're going to live. In fact, he summarizes it here in verse 34, the very end of the passage. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the present for your, for your attention. You know, part of me, when I hear stuff like that, and especially this passage, is I always think about what about planning, right? I mean, our culture planning, and especially planning and making provisions to care for ourselves are, is, is extremely important. It's considered wise. So what about careful preparation, right? Are we not supposed to give any thought to the future at all? And then if that's true, then what about the commendation of Proverbs? You know, Proverbs tells us that the diligent worker takes no shortcuts. The diligent worker arranges his efforts for abundance, the proverb says, in the days to come. What about the example of Joseph? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph was a hero for storing up provisions for all those lean years in Egypt. It was Joseph's planning, his foresight, his care for the future that saved Egypt, but also all of the sons of Jacob that would eventually become Israel itself. What about him? What about planning for your future or the future of your kids or the future of your grandkids? Well, in order not to take the passage out of context, I think it's important to remember here, okay, what Jesus is aiming at. He is not aiming at careful planning for the future. Jesus is aiming at the worship of false gods and especially mammon especially the temptation to make wealth or possessions or a bank account into the project of your life. And to correlate that for planning, to correlate that with planning for the future just means this for us. We have some self-examination to do. We can't just assume that when we plan for the future that that's, that's being wise stewards, okay? There's some correlation here. Here's a question to ask ourselves. Could it be ever that we have hidden our worship of mammon behind the pretext of wise stewardship? Could it be that we have ever hidden the worship of money and wealth under the pretext of wise stewardship? 
Could it be that we've ever called the work of diligence and preparation what is really the worship of money in our hearts? It's a good question, and it leads to another question. Well, how in the world would we know the difference, right? How do we know the difference between planning for the future and materialism as a false god? Well, look at me at verse 26. Thankfully, Jesus gives us some clue here. So he takes us outside, and Jesus says to us, look at the birds of the air. Look up at the birds of the air, okay? Notice the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's also going to talk about the lilies here in a minute. If you want to sort of do the Texas translation, be the blue bonnets, right? He just takes us outside and says, look into the natural world for a moment, and I just want you to notice creatures that have far less glory, far less power, far less value than you. Notice them and learn from them for a moment. So what is the lesson that we are supposed to learn from the birds of the air? Well, look at them flying. Right, as they fly, in their flight, birds are the universal symbol for freedom. Birds fly through the air, they're unconstrained, they're liberated, they're free. And look at the bar- birds, you ever notice that they sing a lot? The birds are singing, aren't they? Look at the birds, listen to them sing. In their song, birds are the universal symbol for joy, they are cheerful, they are lighthearted. Birds are at ease. Yet at the same time, in their freedom and in their cheer, the birds of the air are incredibly industrious, aren't they, and resourceful? They find what they need, and they make homes in the trees. And the birds always provide for the next generation. And all the while, Jesus says, God gives them exactly what they need. Okay, then, right, there's the, there's the natural lesson for us. So how is it that you know the difference between mammon worship and godly and wise stewardship in your life? Let me put it to you this way. In your diligence, in your work, in your care for the future, are your feet light? Are your feet light? Are you free? Is there a song in your heart like the birds of the air? Or in your work, in your diligence, in your care for the future is fear and stress and panic the tone instead? Do you, do you find yourself imagining worst-case scenarios? And those worst-case possibilities, those worst-case scenarios becoming more real to you, more defining for you than the promises of God in the moment. It is strange here, right, Jesus' tactic. He doesn't sort of, so he doesn't say, look, let's go to the, let's go to the complex worlds that men have built. Look at all these amazing cities and the technology and the entertainment and and culture. Now he says, don't look there to know what it is to depend on God. Instead, take a walk through the park. Walk through the park. Look up at the birds. Look at the lilies. And humble yourselves and let them teach you what it is to depend on and worship God in the day-to-day trenches of your adult life. They're free. They're unconstrained, they're liberated, they're cheerful. You'll find if you're worshiping and you're trusting God that those things will be true of you, even as you plan in diligence for the future yourself. So that's the picture. Well, how does that actually happen practically for us? How is it that we go from people who, if not consumed, at least are touched by anxiety and fear in the future, being consumed with the future? How do we go from that? 
to actually freedom and joy and being diligent in where God has us in the present. Well, Jesus tells us here, really the clue here is that we actually make that move by throwing ourselves, by yielding ourselves, by believing in and entrusting ourselves to the love of God. Is that simple a little bit? Simple, and, uh, simple to say, hard to practice? The love of God has the power, Jesus says, to dethrone our idols and to release us from the grip of anxiety and worry. And there are in particular two things regarding the love of God that Jesus tells us here that we need to preach to ourselves. Okay, two things this morning. The first is this. You need to remind yourself in the day-to-day trenches of your life that God knows what you need. You need to remind yourself in the day-to-day trenches of life that God knows what you need. Look at verse 32 with me. There Jesus says, For the Gentiles, that is shorthand for those who don't know God, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, that is, they're consumed by them, and your heavenly Father, what? What does it say? Your heavenly Father, what does it say? Knows, right? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And by implication, your heavenly Father knows much better than you know yourself. Your heavenly Father knows what you need much better than you know yourself. You know, we think we know what we need, right? We, we do, because we're adults. What, what a remarkable achievement. We've made it to adulthood. <laughs> and, and as adults, we think of, you know, Part of being an adult is that we know exactly what we need. But by Jesus calling God your heavenly Father here, he means to say that though you may see yourself as an adult, when you look in the mirror, though you may see yourself as a wise and seasoned veteran of life, right? Though you may see yourself as an adult, God only ever sees you as a child. You are only ever a child in his eyes. And man, do you think a child ever, ever really knows what he needs? Do you think a child ever really knows what he needs? My five-year-old thinks he needs to stay up late at night. Every night. So Friday night, we let him stay up late to watch a movie. He stayed up till 10 p.m. <laughs> because as one comedian puts it, sometimes you're just not up for hostage negotiations, and every night for bedtime is a hostage negotiation scenario. <laughs> so we let him stay up till 10 to finish a movie. And the next morning, he gets up, and he sort of stumbles stumbles, you know, over furniture, trips, makes it to the breakfast table, and then he falls asleep. He face plants as he sits there right into his oatmeal, which is a mess, right? He thinks, he thinks he needs less than 12 hours of sleep every night, and every night he thinks that, and yet I know exactly what he really needs as his father. I know much better than he does. Jesus' point here is, look, you may think you know what you need. You may think you know best what your children need or your grandchildren need. But Jesus says, remind yourself that you are still a child in the eyes of God. That he is the one as your heavenly father that really knows. He knows. And he provides according to your needs. He knows what you need. Number two, we remind ourselves that God not only knows what we need, but God knows exactly what we are worth. God not only knows what we, are, what we need, but God knows exactly what we are worth. That's Jesus' message in pointing out the birds and the lilies. Did you catch that? 
God provides for them, he says, and yet here's the refrain, are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than the birds and the lilies? Man, what, are you, what is your value to God? Really, what, what do you think your value is to God? You know, in the Reformed tradition, which is our tradition, we often lead hard in the direction of our depravity. That is, our smallness, um, our baseness. And in doing so, we don't always do justice to our dignity. So I just want to pull the rope in, in the opposite direction for a moment this morning. What do you think your value is to God? It is, it is more than you think. Whatever you just, whatever picture or entered into your mind just now, it's more than you have yet imagined. And look, I get that there is incredible danger. And Jesus talks about it a lot. There is incredible danger in esteeming yourself above God or above your neighbor. But when you do that, it doesn't mean that you've ever actually overstated the value of your worth. Only that you valued yourself inordinately or out of order. There is a difference there. So how is it that we really know our value to God? How do we know our value to God? Well, for one thing, the Bible tells us that we've been created uniquely in the image of God. When the Bible says that, one of the things it means by that is to say that there's something of God's value imprinted on who we are in our own personhood. Each of us, and that value can't be cheapened by what someone else does to you or has done to you. It can't be cheapened by a disability. It can't be be cheapened by a string of moral failures. In fact, the image of God is the basis, the ongoing basis in Scripture from Genesis all the way to James to why we should treat every person that we come across today, regardless of whatever their orientation is, regardless of their religious orientation, with justice and respect. It is the basis for our modern concept of human rights. The fact that we have been created in the image of God, that we bear something of God's value in our personhood, intrinsically. But we have an even more clarifying assignment of our value in the eyes of God. We know that we are valuable not only because we have been made in his image, but because we have been ransomed by the blood of his son. And so the question is, how valuable do you think the blood of Jesus is? (laughs) I mean, how, because when the New Testament talks about being ransomed, that is market language. It's market language. You've been bought, you've been purchased, you've been redeemed at the payment of the blood, the sacrifice of the heavenly treasure himself. That is your value in the eyes of God. I promise you, men, that you have not yet fathomed the value of your own worth or the value of your wife's worth or the value of your children's worth to God himself. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul teaches us to trust in God's care for us in Romans 8. He writes this, He who did not spare his own son. That's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God would not himself spare his own son, how will he not with him also graciously give you all things that you need? If God would not hold back his son, what do you think he will hold back from you? The answer is nothing that you really need. In fact, and here's the harder lesson. It means this is true. The opposite is true as well. It means that whatever God does give to you, right? Whatever God does give to you, Whatever comes to you through the providence of his hand, 
through the death and resurrection and love of his son, whatever he does, in fact, give you, yes, even pain, yes, even suffering, yes, even loss. Paul says you can trust that that is, in fact, exactly what you've needed. John Newton wrote this letter in a letter to a friend. He said, look, all things shall work together for good. Then he said this, everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. God knows what you need, and he knows your worth, and he will provide accordingly. So what does that look like in practice? Let me just end here this morning. How do we seek first the kingdom of God in the present and not worry about the future, not be consumed about the future? Well, I want, you to, I want to leave you this morning with a vision from the imagination of C.S. Lewis. This has been incredibly helpful for me. This comes from the 15th chapter of a book called The, uh, the Screwtape Letters. And um, it's a fictional book about, um, it's kind of a strange book. So one, if you can imagine this, one veteran demon named Uncle Screwtape, Screwtape, is training, is writing letters, is training a younger uh, novice demon named Wormwood on how to basically ruin the lives of, of men. And Wormwood's uh, person that he's assigned to happens to be a Christian. So really the book is about how demons think about ruining the lives of Christians. Okay, that's how Lewis writes it. So screw tape, and, and chapter 15 is all about time and especially the present. Okay, it's a very powerful chapter, especially for people who are given to the future, like me. So screw tape, who's the veteran, right? He informs Wormwood that human beings live in time, but they are destined for eternity. He says it is then the business of human beings to attend chiefly to two things, both the present and eternity. For the present, he says, the present is the, is the place, is the point at which time touches eternity. Only the present moment is the point at which time actually comes into contact with eternity. Screwtape then says this, it is far better to make men live in the future because the future is the place that inflames hope and fear. Nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love looks to the present but fear and greed and lust and worldly ambition, they look ahead. Then he says this. Remember, this is a demon talking. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy right now, but always using as mere fuel every real gift which is offered in the present for the sake of the altar of the future. And he contrasts this with the vision of God according to Screwtape. Here's what he says God's vision is for men. To be sure, and he calls God the enemy, to be sure the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just as much as is necessary for right now planning acts of justice and charity, which is their duty tomorrow. Then he says, this is not straw splitting. The enemy, that is God, does not want men to give their future their hearts, to place their treasure in it, but we do. Now, here's, the, here's the, the payoff for me, at least, the vision for me. He says, God's ideal, is an, God's ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity and his vocation, 
He washes his mind of the whole subject. He commits the issue to heaven. And he returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. Let me say it again. Here's the ideal. You work all day for good. Diligently. All day for good. And you wash your mind of the results. You commit the results to heaven. And you return at once to the patience or gratitude or love or grief demanded by the moment that God has called you to live in right now. What does the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the righteousness of God require of you in the present moment? That's where your attention belongs. Men, you belong in the present where time touches eternity. And the love of God has freed you from the burden and stress of tomorrow. Plan wisely, and yet commit your days to heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning, and we thank you for your word to us. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to know what our gods are, Father. Um, we pray, Father, Lord, that you, would, um, that you would dethrone them by your love for us. Help us to believe that you know what we need, and to believe that you value us, O oh Lord and to believe that those things come together um, under your providence and care for us. Lord, we do pray that you would make us diligent, help us to commit our days to heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.